With Elevate 150 from Notre Dame Federal Credit Union, you can grow financially stronger and so can Redeemer Radio. Visit NotreDameFCU.com slash Elevate. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Church Life Today is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and our listeners. Hi, I'm so-and-so, and I'm a scientist, a Catholic scientist. That might be how we would imagine an introduction in a support group for people who share a common problem. In this case, the problem would be being a person of faith in a field or profession within the sciences where prayer, belief, and openness to God would typically make you seem like less than you really should be. Or maybe we would imagine that at best, the Catholic scientists can defend or give an adequate apology for religion and science being compatible. In other words, it's okay, really. These things can coexist, I promise. But what if we've gotten it all wrong? What if rather than a problem to be eradicated or at best a dimension to be defended, there is a more profound, integral, and mutually enriching relationship to be heralded and explored in the person who is at once a person of faith and a person of reason, a Catholic and a scientist. That wider space is where my guest today leads us. She is Sophia Carozza, a Marshall Scholar at the University of Cambridge, where she researches the neurobiological pathways through which early adversity affects the developing brain. She was the 2019 valedictorian of the University of Notre Dame, and now, in addition to her graduate work in neuroscience, she blogs at Synapses of the Soul and co-hosts the podcast The Pilgrim Soul. Sophia and I will share a two-part conversation, and this is part one. Part two will be released next week on air and by podcast. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, a production of the McGrath Institute for Church Life in collaboration with the Spoke Street Media Network. I'm glad you're here. Sophia Carozza, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lenny. I'm glad to be here. Sophia, you recently published an essay in our Church Life Journal under the title, The Garden of Forking Methods. And what I find to be a deep, profound, and illuminating way, you offer something like what I would call a mini course in the vocation of a Catholic scientist. As you say right at the outset, you often find yourself in the position of having to defend or explain the compatibility of science and religion. And one of the problems with the concern for compatibility is that it ends up setting the bar far too low. Mm -hmm. So you said about raising the bar, and I found like really bursting open expectations. So how is it, Sophia, that you want to reframe this consideration of science and religion, your Catholic faith, and your professional pursuits? Thank you. Thank you for that kind reading of my essay. I was really excited to have the chance to write and articulate this because really what it is is the fruit of my lived experience as a scientist and my own insight through my life and through the scientists that surround me, Catholic and otherwise, that... The scientific method and the work of science within the community of researchers around the world is actually not only compatible with the life of faith, but I would say a training ground. Mm. It's an exercise in the very same capacities of the mind and heart that enable us to come to recognize God 
to recognize Christ's presence in our midst, to recognize that he continues to direct and guide the church. So I was really excited to be able to draw from my experience and examples of prominent scientists throughout history to weave together a narrative of how exactly that unfolds. What does it look like for a scientist to be formed by the work of her professional vocation in a way that sets her up to say yes to the vocation that God has for her soul, to intimate union with him and a destiny of eternal glory in heaven? How did you come upon that insight? So as you say, you trace some of the example and the witness of other Catholic scientists throughout history, but also some of the folks that you look up to and admire today have learned from. Where did you first come upon this broader consideration of the relationship between a Catholic's faith and her research as a scientist? It was really in my own life Mm. before I started thinking about these relationships conceptually. It was seeing that in my science classes as an undergraduate and my independent research that I was learning to approach the world in a way that in turn enriched my faith. So at that point, I had already said yes to the vocation of a Christian. I had said yes to Christ's invitation to relationship with him. But of course, as we all are, you know, I'm still growing in that. And I find that The more I take seriously my work as a scientist, the more I'm disciplined about methodology and constantly striving to learn and to be better as a scientist, the more my faith grows. And that's not the narrative that you hear, right? Because as you mentioned right at the start, we stall the discourse at, oh, you study neuroscience and you're also Catholic? Uh Like, how do you keep together this, whether it's the question of evolution or freedom or whatever it is, how do you keep together this worldview that is explicitly theological with one that is, quote unquote, purely scientific? Mm -hmm. And it frustrates me so much because there's so much more that I want to say in response to that question. Like, no, like you don't even start to see how studying the brain opens my heart to the encounter with Christ, you know, through through awakening me to awe, through teaching me to look for small signs in my everyday life and Mm. to form a judgment about what they mean and what they're pointing to. All these little things about the life of a scientist that, you know, I think it's really beautiful in its promise for what it means in, in Catholic schools and in the life of Catholic professionals, not to mention the overarching history of prominent Catholic scientists, right. you know, to see science as a, a space of preparation for receiving the gospel. Yeah, that was one thing I really appreciated about your essay, giving us this little litany of sort of Catholic scientists over the ages, which moves us past just the one singular example of the conflict between religion and science that usually comes down to Galileo. And a, a reading of that historical moment and often a misreading of it. But nevertheless, you give us a sort of genealogy of the growth of scientific research the rigors of the scientific method by those who were profoundly faithful and deeply invested in their Catholic faith. Yes, I think it's explicitly a a modern, or exclusively, sorry, a a modern phenomenon that prominent neuroscientists are not religious, that Mm -hmm. many of them aren't. Mm -hmm. Because if you look at the origin of the field, all of them were. And and you can't just chalk it up to the fact that the society was religious at the time. I mean, look at Blessed Nicholas Steno. He was a Catholic 
convert and bishop during the time of the Reformation, and he's one of the founders of the field of neuroanatomy. Yeah. And I think, reading his writings, what it looks like is he's so animated by his love of God that he has this deep affection for the human person and this passion to discover the intimate workings of the mind that enables us to come to know God. So mm -hmm. it's this self-reinforcing cycle whereby his love of God inspires, you know, in the words of Psalm 8, what is man that you keep him in mind, mortal man that you care for him. It inspires this huge affection and wonder in front of the human person and the human brain, right? which in turn enables us to say, you know, my Lord and my God, who are you who have created this? So it's it's really beautiful. Mm. You know, I think about a sort of parallel case, and I'm not going to ask you to speak on politics here, but about <laughs> the politician who may be a person of faith, and yet the public demands that that faith, though they kind of want to see it there, remain private, right? Like it mm -hmm. not influence policy, their public opinions, their political positions, et cetera. And I wonder if you encounter something similar as you've sort of progressed through the scientific community that, well, it may be well and good that you are a person of faith. And in fact, there's something even maybe quaint or, you know, approved Quirky. of about that, right? Yeah. But it ought to remain private so as not to interfere with the rigor and objectivity of your scientific research. Have you encountered that? I have uh. repeatedly, but just like in the realm of politics, which I think is a great point of comparison here, it's nonsensical. Mm. I mean, I don't even think it's a question of whether or not it's desirable. I think it's a question of whether or not it's possible. And the answer is no. Right. Because just like politics deals with the conditions for human flourishing, you can't aim at those without having a notion of what the person is. Yeah. So too with neuroscience in particular, right? Because our subject matter is the human person. And I would say most scientists actually aren't materialists. They acknowledge that there's something about the human person that's not just physical, that mm -hmm. we're not just an organization of atoms. And as soon as you acknowledge that, to then table all considerations of what else might be going on besides synaptic firing? That's bad science, right? <laughs> and so while, of course, we have to respect disciplinary boundaries, I think it's profoundly unreasonable to say, yeah, you can come research here, you can come study the brain, but leave your religiosity at the door because yeah. that's impossible and it impoverishes then my gaze on my research participants, on my data, on my own scientific method. It's almost like the expectation is that you become an impersonal automated system, that that is the right. ideal, that you just sort of discover data, read data, process data, put out more data. But yes. what you're saying is, no, there's actually a human being here who has brought assumptions to the table. And the first assumption, perhaps, especially for a neuroscientist, is what is the human being? And nobody mm -hmm. actually operates without an assumption. You just might pretend that there's no assumption, right? Right, which implicitly is is an answer. <laughs> That's and right. I do think that the move in science now is towards big data and towards artificial intelligence. Mm -hmm. And so the pressure is particularly acute now because especially with the replicability crisis, we're moving more and more towards these enormous data sets where rather than being really specific about the hypothesis and the underlying mechanism that you think is at play in this particular neurological condition or cognitive function, 
Instead, it's, well, what can we find in the data? Because that's robust and that's replicable. We can actually take the scientist out of the equation, as you were saying. All we need to do is run our artificial neural networks and it'll tell us what the truth is. And it's totally abdicating the responsibility of the scientist, which not only distances us from the truth of how the brain works, but really, I would say, deprives us of the greatest possibilities of discovery Mm -hmm. and wonder at creation and even using science, neuroscience in particular, to improve the human condition, whether it's through novel therapies or understanding developmental conditions or whatever it is. So it's a danger for science as well as for scientists Mm -hmm. to look at it this way. That's a great way of putting it. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today on Spoke Street Media Network. My guest is Sophia Carozza, Marshall Scholar at the University of Cambridge. She's a member of the Society of Catholic Scientists. She blogs at Synapses of the Soul, and she co-hosts the Pilgrim Soul podcast. So in your essay that we, we started with, this essay, The Garden of Forking Methods, you focus squarely on reason and the responsibilities of the scientist for how to use and employ reason. I think at the notional level, most of us, and especially Catholics, assent to the proposition that faith and reason are not in conflict, but indeed complementary. And yet, I can't help but think after reading your essay that we do not readily consider the kind of human, moral, and even like spiritual formation that is necessary for us, and maybe especially for the scientists, to exercise reason well. So, another way of putting this is that we think about faith formation. But we do not think about something like reason formation. I don't know if that's the right right term. I wholeheartedly agree. I think the term that I would use is the the education of reason. There we go. That reason needs to be trained in adequate methodology, aimed at its proper object, sustained in its work, just like faith. All of those things are true about faith as well. And so I think I'm helped by expanding our notion of reason. I can overcome sort of this false dichotomy by saying reason isn't even something that's strictly applicable to the scientific or philosophical realm. I actually think that it encompasses also the movement of the heart towards faith in God. That if reason isn't, as the Enlightenment would have it, just a process of logical steps to reach a result, a demonstrable truth, if reason isn't that, but instead is something broader and more expansive. Luigi Giustani would say it's the insatiable need of the eye to understand the truth of reality. Mm. So it's the relationship between the human person and all of reality. If that's what reason is, of course there's no conflict between faith and reason or religion and science because God is real, has become incarnate in our human reality. How are we supposed to come to know him, verify the fact that Christ is present and he loves us, if not through the use of our reason, right? Yeah. But as you said, that involves necessarily a work of education Mm -hmm. because we don't come out of the womb with a fully fledged, you know, heart capable of doing this work of verification and taking seriously our questions and taking the appropriate steps needed to answer them. Mm. You mentioned in your response there, Father Luigi Giussani, who is plays not just a, a major role in this essay that you wrote, but also in your own formation as a Catholic and his movement of communion and liberation. 
Can you tell us a little bit about Luigi Gisani and the way in which, especially what you're talking about here in, in terms of the education of reason, he's been a, a sort of guide for learning how to make that case and see this way of education? How much time do you have? <laughs> yeah, well, we can just we can just do episode <laughs> after episode here, Sophia. <laughs> <laughs> Let's turn it into a Giussani podcast. That's right. Luigi Giussani was a priest. It was just recently the 16th anniversary of his passing. He mm -hmm. was a priest in the Diocese of Milan in Italy and a very prominent theologian. Mm. So he had entered the seminary at a very young age, became a professor at the seminary for Milan, but discovered a call to go and teach high school students in a public high school in Milan because of this event that happened to him on a train in which he overheard students talking about faith as if it were just this crystallized set of dogmas that mm. had nothing to do with their daily life. And he was full of, of course, sorrow and anger that this was the way that Christianity had been proposed to them. What an impoverishment, right? So he turned from his studies to this more pastoral work of proposing Christianity as an event, as the coming of Christ into the world. And by demonstrating, by inviting these students into his life and his friendship, by saying yes to that proposal, the human person becomes more fully alive. So reason plays a key part in the way that he educates persons to faith, because essentially his account of reason, like St. John Henry Newman's really, is more expansive than that of the Enlightenment. As I mentioned before, he says reason is the insatiable need of the eye to understand the truth of things. So it's the relationship between the human person and reality. So what do we need then if we're going to discover through our reason the event of Christ? We need to have a passionate desire to observe the world, right? And to gather the details that we see. We need openness to the appropriate methods of knowing that belong to the objects that we're trying to discover, in this case, Christ. We need to be able to form a judgment about what we see. We need to be able to accept the witnesses of others who point us to the truth. And reason, ultimately, and this is one of the things I love most about his account, reason demands a love of the truth, a love of the truth that frees you from your attachments to what you already believe. Mm -hmm. So this is just a general sketch of, of what he says about reason in his most famous book, The Religious Sense. But you can see already in each of those points, there's a hint of how reason is the foundation of the way that our religious sense comes to know that its answer is Christ. Mm -hmm. So it's beautiful. It's in our, in communion and liberation, which is the movement that Father Giussani started, we have weekly moments of, of catechesis called School of Community. And we get together to discuss our lives in light of a text written by Father Giussani. And often it involves a work of examining how our reason and our memory and our judgment are at play in our lives and really scrutinizing, has there been an answer to those? How can we better approach our lives, purifying these and, and enriching and educating these capacities of our hearts so that we can more faithfully recognize and proclaim Christ's presence in our midst? So for me, it's been obviously foundational in my yeah. faith life, really, really forming who I am as a Christian today, but also in my life as a scientist, because as I mentioned before, 
the principles of reason set you up to discover whatever truth is in front of you, whether it's Jusani loves to use the example of trying to decide who to marry, right? You need (laughs) your reason to do that. But so too with my scientific methodology now as I'm studying the brain here in Cambridge. And so too with my faith, with coming to verify each and every day as if it's the first time that God exists and that he loves me. Mm. A couple of times now as you've spoken of the truth of this kind of commitment to and maybe eventually an insatiable desire to discover the truth, I can't help but think in the way that you're speaking about it, about the truth as a act of communication. Mm. That might sound a little bit strange, but that maybe the way we think about truth is as something just static and kind of objectified out there that we have to somehow go to find. Mm -hmm. But it seems, especially for the Christian, the fundamental proclamation is that he who is the truth has made himself available to you, has communicated himself to you, even beginning from you know, Genesis 1 and the account, the sort of cosmic account of creation, you're actually being addressed right from the beginning because it's taking your perspective. In other words, the sky is above and the sea is below. It's taking the human perspective. It's communicated to you. Mm -hmm. So I bring this back, you know, to what some of the things you're thinking about and we were talking about a little bit earlier in terms of sort of taking stock of who you are as the researcher, as the seer of things, that you're not just a data processor. You're actually a person who is in a relationship in some way with that which you are seeking, with the one you are studying, however we might want to put that. How does that sort of dispositionally, we might say, change how you go about your work as a scientist? Was there a shift for you where that took place or has that just sort of naturally, organically emerged for you as you've progressed in your study and progressed in your faith? That's a really great question. And I have to say that at the start of my, dare I call it an obsession, at the start of my obsession with the brain, this dynamic was very much present, Mm. immediate. It was the truth reaching out to me, captivating me with its beauty and its intrigue, right? It's been for a decade now that I've been fascinated by why it is that human beings do what they do, how it is that they think and behave, and when that goes wrong, why does it happen? So it inspired in me just this passionate desire to know. That's at the origin, but it's also the animating principle, right? Because if you start to open a neuroscience textbook or start reading a journal article, you have to keep in mind this awe and this wonder, this desire to know the truth of things, if you're going to read properly, if you're going to have the energy and the understanding to really take the truth and integrate it with what you already know and with your life. So if it wasn't for this ability of the truth to animate in me awe and wonder and curiosity, I wouldn't have started to study neuroscience Mm -hmm. in, in college. Now, of course, the thing with being a full-time researcher is that you can easily get separated from this yeah. because it's more procedural and you're focusing on narrower questions. And to go back to your point about education, I think this is where I really rely on people around me to reawaken me to the fact that it's the truth coming in search of me, that I have to be open to the signs of its presence and to enable the truth to rekindle in me my passion for discovering it. Mm. Because if suddenly it's like, 
instead of a message coming in a bottle across the ocean, it's me setting out on that ocean. Ooh. I quickly lose steam and want to quit the PhD. So this is <laughs> a constant education in my life. And yeah. One that I'm blessed to have examples in here in my community in Cambridge, without which I'm sure I would flounder. Yeah, it reminds me, I had a teacher in graduate school as we're studying theology, and we'd come across these ideas that we really loved, and we'd start getting into them and maybe write papers on them or have class discussions on them. And every once in a while, she would say, well, that'll never preach. In other words, like <laughs> this is a fine idea. And actually, all of you are doing the right thing by going and seeking after a better understanding of this. But do not forget a context in which this must eventually be communicated and shared. In other words, your responsibility mm -hmm. to teach that which you find and which you study. And I think you're making a, a slightly different point, but it makes me think about that of ha having this grounding and that as the, as the scholar, it is your duty to go deep. And narrow at times, but it's also as a human being, your responsibility to keep that in touch with a broader set of considerations of who you are and the community that eventually you seek to serve in your particular way. It mm -hmm. makes me want to ask you maybe at the end of this first conversation about something that goes along with reason that you're talking about here, especially in your essay, which is reasonableness. So maybe we'll yes. talk about that just here at the end. You say reasonableness means having adequate motives in every step we take toward the object of our knowledge. And this relates to the title of the essay that we had been discussing, The Garden of Forking Methods. Would you help us to understand what the importance of reasonableness is and what you're getting at there? Absolutely. This is a key point. So I'm glad that you brought it up. Reasonableness, it, it sounds redundant, right? If you're exercising your reason, <laughs> aren't you being reasonable? Right. But reasonableness really is this distinctive ability to keep in mind the whole of reality and to take only one step at a time towards certainty. So there are no foregone conclusions. There's no excising or ignoring or censoring aspects of reality. You keep in mind the whole and you take one step at a time. Here, I guess the best way to understand reasonableness is to think of what the opposite is. And Jusani says that it's basically like looking at reality with a serious case of myopia. Like you yeah. can't see more than a foot in front of you. And if you think about like looking at a painting, for instance, especially if it's like pointillism, you see one dot on the canvas of reality and you have no idea what it means. Mm -hmm. It's not until you step back and take in the whole picture that you can say, ah, this is a point on the skirt of a woman standing by a river. Whereas close up, all you see is a dot of pink, right? So reasonableness enables, this is why it's good both for science and for faith. Keeping the whole of reality in mind means you're not going to get ideological, that you're actually looking for and at truth rather than this one question that you perhaps have already answered and you're just looking for confirming evidence. Mm -hmm. And you take one step at a time towards it, right? You zoom in slowly to, to really discern what's there. Because again, if you go too quickly, both in science and in faith, it's a foregone conclusion and you don't have the experiential evidence that will found your faith or your scientific discovery on a rock rather than sand. So whether it's, again, discerning your vocation to marriage or the religious life or taking steps towards verifying a scientific theory, you need to take 
one at a time. You need to make sure that each step you take, you have reasons for doing so, that you've received the words that Christ is giving you in your daily life to say, yes, this is true. Yes, I believe. That's what founds it on rock. Well, we have plenty more to talk about, and we'll continue this in our second episode to keep this conversation going. I've been talking to Sophia Carozza. You can read her essays online at the Church Life Journal. The one we've been discussing mostly is The Garden of Forking Methods. Be sure to read that. Sophia also writes on her blog, Synapses of the Soul, which I highly recommend. And she is in the podcasting game with her sister and a close friend. Give them a listen at the Pilgrim Soul podcast. Sophia, thanks for this time, and thanks for sticking around. We'll have a second part of this conversation in just a little bit. Thank you, Lenny. Church Life Today is a production of Spoke Street Media and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.